Please be seated. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. And I really appreciate the worship team leading us in all of these worship songs, but some of the ones that they're doing are ones that we'll be singing from uh, to the Lord in heaven from Genesis chapter 4 and 5. And uh, I think that uh, Calvary Chapel of Modesto will hold its own on that glassy sea. We'll at least know the words. I don't know if they'll have these screens up there, but uh, I don't think we'll need them up there. After these things, chapter 4, verse 1, after these things, John wrote, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. After these things, the word metatauta, at the end of verse 1, at least as it's written in the New King James, come up here and and I will show you, the angel said, things which must take place after this. Again, metatauta, the uh, outline given uh, by Jesus concerning the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 19, when he said that this, write the things which you have seen, which is Genesis, uh, Revelation chapter 1, the things which are, that is the church age, chapters 2 and 3. And then he said, the, and the things which will take place after this, after the church age, metatauta, he uses the word metatauta twice in chapter 4, verse 1, just so we know, uh, uh, without mistaking it at all, that we are beginning the third division uh, of the book of Revelation that defines what happens in heaven and on the earth following the rapture uh, of, of the church. I think that sometimes uh, as we read the Bible, uh, we could wish that we knew a little bit more about heaven. And we say, boy, what are we going to do up there? And people got us playing harps and all kinds of things, don't they? In the cartoons and all. And uh, maybe you'll be a harp player up there. But uh, I don't think we're all going to be sitting on clouds, uh, you know, playing harps. That's not the picture that the Bible uh, paints of this. And uh, one of the things that I do when, uh, so often when someone knows the Lord and has gone on to be with the Lord uh, and uh, the family members, sometimes we're grappling with where is our loved one now? What is the scene that they're in the middle of and all? And it's wonderful to go to Revelation chapter 4 and, and direct a person to read and to say, that is the scene that your loved one is, is in the middle of. And, and this is one of the great values of, of this particular insight to heaven that chapters 4 and 5 uh, give us is it helps us to realize those that we love. And the longer we walk with the Lord, the longer we live for the Lord in this world, the, the greater and greater the uh, proportion of our family and our church family finds themselves up in, in heaven and until, you know, it's very easy for this world not to be our home as we're longing to be reunited with those that are in, in heaven uh, before us. Another thing that's good about uh, knowing a little bit about heaven here from chapters 4 and 5 is that I really do want you, uh, when you get up there, uh, to know what you're doing uh, up there, especially if they give out like sweatshirts that have like what the church you come from and all. So if you go up there and I mean you're completely thrown by these, uh, you know, four living creatures and the 24 elders and the crowns and the throne and the whole bit and, and, uh, and you're walking around, you know, Daya, what's that all about, you know, in the... Say, uh, don't say you come from another church. You won't be able to up there. You'll have a new body. But, but don't say you came from here. And uh, at, least, at, le at least say I, I wasn't 
paying much attention uh, when they went, <laughs> they did teach it to me, but, but I didn't pay much attention to it. I, Vance Havner, if, you, if you're never familiar with him, he's gone on to be with the Lord and one of the persons that makes heaven, uh, heaven, you know, secondary to the Lord, but, but these great saints that go, have gone on before us. He says this about heaven, I love it. He said, there are a lot of questions the Bible doesn't answer about the hereafter. But he said, but I think one reason is illustrated by the story of a boy sitting down to a bowl of spinach when there's a chocolate cake at the end of the table. He's going to have a rough time eating that spinach when his eyes are on the cake. And if the Lord had explained everything to us about what's ours to come, I think we'd have a rough time with our spinach down here. And so he tells us what we need to know about heaven. And, uh, and so here is John. He enters uh, into the heavenly scene. There's the invitation. A voice which I heard was like a trumpet. We're going to see that word like a lot through uh, this uh, uh, section of the Scriptures. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, remember, uh, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he talked about one who had uh, had, had a vision and he was taken up into the third heaven and uh, saw things that it would just be, or heard things. He said the things that he heard would be unlawful to try and explain it in human language it would be a disservice to what just what he heard in heaven speaking in nothing that he that he saw in heaven so he here is the apostle paul with this um, great legal mind and he looks at it and if he can't do heaven uh, justice then he's just going to leave it alone you'll see it when you get there now uh, uh, the apostle john's a bit of an artist and these artistic types, they'll, they'll try and, and do something a lawyer wouldn't do. And to try and explain a little bit about what he's seeing up there. And of course he's inspired by the Spirit to do that. But you notice the like. He's, he's really, he's going to do the best he can to explain heaven in, in, in human language. But he's going to qualify it continually. It's kind of like this. That's as close as I can get to, to explaining it, uh, uh, to you. So, he said, uh, the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So the invitation uh, by this uh, angel to come up into heaven and, uh, and see what it is that's going to happen in heaven after the rapture of the church. He says the voice that he heard was like a trumpet. And we see that, we'll see that a lot in the book of Revelation here. And, and the, the voices it's speaking, it's loud. Uh, there's a tremendous clarity to the voice. Uh, it's beautiful. I'm convinced that when we do uh, get into heaven with he, what he describes, we're going to hear the things that we're going to see, that it, it is going to be the, have uh, involved the original intent for the senses. Our senses are fallen now. And uh, what we're going to hear there, what we're going to see there in these new bodies, how we're going to process information, our ability to appreciate uh, heaven is going to be way beyond what we can, can do at this time. And so he, he speaks here uh, about the voice being like a trumpet, loud, and, uh, and he's going to talk about throughout this chapter. We will get to it. I'm not just going to tell you about all the things we're going to get to and not get to it, but uh, he talks about loud voices singing and a loud voice to the Lord and all in heaven. And heaven is going to be a loud place. 
Uh, you'll have good ears and a good capacity to appreciate it uh, when you're up there. But if you're still struggling with an electric guitar and drums on the worship team, uh, your problems are just beginning because heaven is filled with worship and it's very, very loud uh, up there. And immediately I was in the Spirit. This is something that is coming to him by the Spirit of God, this vision. And behold, this is what he sees. The first thing he sees as he's introduced into heaven, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And the first thing he sees is the throne of the Father and the Father sitting upon the throne. But he doesn't see the Father, as we're going to see in just a moment, because the Father does not take a physical form. He is spirit. And how he, he describes him in a, in a couple of minutes here is, is very, very interesting. But heaven, I love it. I know I'm going to love heaven. <laughs> it's all about God. It's about his throne. It's about him sitting upon that throne. And he sits on that throne in heaven. And he doesn't apologize for it. And there's no rebellion against that or anything like that. There's no committees. There's no parliament. There's no cabinets. There's no opinion polls. There's no, uh, you know, divisiveness between uh, political parties and all of that stuff. Heaven is very, very simple place. He rules there. And everybody that is in heaven is thrilled that that is the case and so nothing in heaven is going to compete with God for our heart our mind our soul our strength he is it it, it will be the center of our attention in that heavenly scene and of course it reminds us of of uh, Isaiah chapter 6 the vision of that throne when Isaiah wrote in the year that King Uzziah died he said I saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up and, and uh, uh, sitting upon his throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and the angels cried holy 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 and very similar to the scene that we're going to see in this passage here but here was Uzziah the king uh, of the southern kingdom of Judah very very good king he had ruled over Judah for decades and even though he was a great king and he had tried to bring godly reform to the nation even in the midst of that God's people were slipping further and further into sin uh, of their own desire and and will. And here now, King uh, uh, Uzziah dies, and and Isaiah looks at it and said, Wow, if we haven't gotten wickedness and evil on the run while we had this king, what in the world's going to happen with the next king in a time of tremendous uncertainty for the southern kingdom of Judah? And what does the Lord do to solve things for Isaiah? Gives him a vision of the throne behind the thrones of man gives him the vision of the great throne greater than the throne of even Uzziah the throne that is never empty the throne that God is always sitting on and and that's what you know we always have to remember before we read the newspaper or that we turn on the news so often we're seeing the throne of Uzziah or whoever and then what God is faithful to do in his word is remind us there is a throne in heaven that is never empty never changes is it never an assault against God in in that scene and so here he gets to see it uh, with his with his own eyes one of the things that I notice about God is that he's sitting on that throne Uh, he's not pacing 
He's not anxious about anything at all. He's a, he is the picture of peace upon that throne. You know what that tells me? If he can relax, we can relax. Now, if, if, if the picture was, and God was pacing back and forth before the throne, I'd be a little antsy about that, but that's not what it says. Heaven is completely relaxed. They, 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 aren't, they are not alarmed at all about what they see happening here. They don't like it, but they're not alarmed about it. They're not alarmed as they look at our individual lives. The Lord isn't. In heaven, they know God wins. They know that he has the final say in every situation, all of, all of man's history. And so he's sitting there upon that throne. Heaven is going to be all about God. I am going to love that. No man, no, you know, pictures of here's the usher of the month or, you know, none of these. It's going to all be about uh, that throne. God bless you, ushers, but uh, we won't do that either. And, and so there he was. And then, and he who sat there uh, on that throne was, and then there's that word like again, isn't it? Like a jasper and a sardis, uh, sardius stone in appearance. So he says it's like, he can't describe them. He said it's just colors. There's just these colors coming off of that throne. And the first thing that he sees coming off of this throne is just this light heading off into e eternity like a jasper stone. And the, the jasper stone that's uh, described here is a little different than for those of you who are into stones and all those rock, rockology or whatever, all that is, whatever. So you know, you know the right word. And uh, so you know that a jasper stone today is kind of opaque, a little bit milky and all. But later on in chapter 21, we're going to see that God describes this jasper stone as being perfectly clear. So you have this light that is coming off of the throne that is like, the, the stone is like a diamond. It's just, just bright, beautiful, pure, clear light that is, is beaming uh, forward. And then he said, not only concerning the jasper stone in appearance, but also a sardis stone. And the sardis stone is, is like ruby red uh, color, very, very deep, deep red. And so maybe that stone uh, speaks a little bit about uh, redemption, and the Lord is the source of, of our redemption. It is interesting, if you, if you put the two stones together, they, they beautifully communicate what God does in a human life. The first stone that's mentioned... He just comes as a light. He takes his white-hot light holiness and he lays it alongside of our life and he exposes our sin. And, and just when that exposure of our sin would leave us undone or without hope that we could be saved and, and without hope for our situation, then he comes and immediately he hides uh, what the light exposes then with his blood, with the red stone, the sardius stone. And then notice he declares concerning that throne that uh, there was also a rainbow around the throne in appearance as an emerald. And an emerald is a beautiful, beautiful green. Now we think of a, a rainbow as being kind of a half of an arc kind of thing. This rainbow goes all the way around the throne and it's green. And nobody knows particularly why it's green. Uh, for those of you who, for whom green is your favorite color, going to like it. And those of you for who it, it, it isn't, you're still going to like it. 
And, we, and I look at green, I don't know what it means, but it speaks of life to me. It speaks of beautiful, it speaks of beauty to me. And so here is these tremendous, just beautiful, beautiful uh, colors that are uh, there in heaven. Heaven is not going to be some dull, drab place. It's going to be a very, very colorful place. And, 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 you know, it, it, which makes it so weird that all through, you know, church history it seems that Christians have worn the most somber and sober of colors out of respect for God. Black suits, navy blue suits. The only thing they wear is a tie that has some semblance to heaven. You know, it's a crazy color kind of, of, of thing. If we're going to wear something that's reflective of heaven, it should be those big, loud Hawaiian shirts. Maybe that's what we should wear. If they didn't cost so much. I'm telling you, that's another problem, isn't it? But it, big, or, or like, one of the, whenever I think of just bright, people wearing bright colors, professional bowlers. <laughs> you ever watch them? It's like, who let you out of the house on... <laughs> They wear plaids and stripes and polka dots and all at the same time. Crazy colors, pastels, primaries. I mean, every kind of deal. But, but that's what heaven is, is going to be like. Very, very uh, colorful, uh, colorful place. Now remember, God is the one who created color to begin with. I mean, uh, Julie, as I, I was in here just before the service start, and she said, did you see the sunset tonight? Well, I was, I was already in church. <laughs> so I, I missed that. I, I was here earlier for the uh, prayer meeting for the missionaries. I'm just teasing, Julie. But, any, but I did, after I opened up in prayer and I headed out, and Toby and I, we walked around to come in over here, and I saw the sunset. Beautiful sunset. How many of you saw it tonight? It's beautiful, wasn't it? The colors that are there. You think about, you look at the sky, how blue it is. I mean, we have to fight for it here, don't we, in the Central Valley. And you look at the greens of the plants, and now spring's coming in you go to the nurseries and you see all these greens and mixtures of greens and all the colors of the flowers and you're going to mix this to do this and all so you can look out your window or go in the backyard or whatever and not and try and forget that it's 107 degrees here in the central valley and you do you take those oars sometimes i like i happen to like the town i like town and country fairs and uh, the one that I grew up around, you would go into this one building, and it was where the, all the people made jewelry and stuff out of the stones and all, and they'd have all these stones displayed. You can't believe what's inside of a rock. The blues, the greens, the purples, the pinks. God created all of it. He's created all of, of, of the colors. And there just isn't any way heaven is going to be less colorful than this world. It's not going to be less beautiful than this world. It's fallen and it's beautiful. Imagine what it's going to be like in heaven, these colors. That's why John's got to say, like. <laughs> I haven't seen it. It's, it's like. Uh, just, it's like. It, 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 consider this, but then it goes off of, off of, of, of the graph. Take the most beautiful thing that a person can set their eyes on. 
upon in this world. I mean, next to your wife or your husband. Wife or husband wouldn't be beautiful. And, and what the eye will be able to feast on, just the eye alone in heaven, will be infinitely greater. And we'll have new eyes to see it. Beautiful. Then notice in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So all the way around this single great throne of God, there's 24 thrones in a circle all the way around his, his throne. So don't ask what that's about when you get up there. 24 thrones, and there's 24 elders sitting on those thrones. They're dressed in white robes. They're wearing crowns on their heads. And the crowns that they're wearing is a very particular crown. It's the Stephanos. It's the crown that was given to an athlete. The Olympics are on right now. The crown that was given to an athlete for winning the race that they were engaged in. It was the victor's crown. That's the crown that they're wearing on their heads. And so whoever these people are, they have run their spiritual race well. Now, concerning the identity of the 24 elders, there's some speculation about that. Uh, but I'll solve it all for you before we're done here. I think that... Um, I, we can, I think we can absolutely be sure that these are saints. As they're dressed in white, they have the reward of having uh, run their, their race uh, well there and all. But most specifically, I believe them to be saints because of a song that they sing in chapter 5, verse 8. Or, or, or uh, in, uh, if you just look over there with me. Now, when he had taken the scroll, Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and uh, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints and they sang here the 24 elders saying you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us can't be angels can't be angels angels cannot be redeemed the angels that followed Satan in his rebellion there is no redemption for them there's redemption for sinful human beings and so they can't be angels, as uh, some uh, particular interpreters of Revelation put it. Okay, they're post-trippers, put it that way, and you've got to spiritualize it to make it that way. But they, they can't, an angel can't sing that song. And, and so he said, you, and they sing, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So it can't be Israel, because Israel is one people and one nation. These are people that have been redeemed out of the broad cross-section of humanity. You're talking about the church, Jew and Gentile alike, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And I'm convinced that these 24 elders represent the church in heaven at the beginning of, of the great uh, tribulation uh, period. Who these 24 are, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I've heard in the one, uh, the one kind of speculation that I like uh, the best is that it is one representative from each of the 12 tribes of Israel 
representing the Old Testament saints and then uh, each one of the 12 apostles and Paul taking the place of Judas uh, uh, then take, uh, representing the New Testament saints uh, around, around the, the throne. Now, one person looked at it and said, I don't know about that because John would be one of the 12. And he's, you know, probably 90, 100 or whatever at this, at this time. And I think in heaven we're going to be about whatever the age we were, Adam and Eve were in the original creation, probably about 30. Everything is working good then, whatever that is. So John doesn't look over there and say, wow, I saw the tw 24 and I was one of them. And boy, did I look good at 30. So, but it, but it, it could, we really don't know. Nobody knows except that these appear to be saints who ran their race very, very well. And then they, they have this position in eternity. And then notice in verse 5, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. So you've got the sights of heaven, and now you've got some of the sounds of heaven. One of the most uh, awe-inspiring things in life is, is to sit through a thunder and lightning storm, isn't it? Really, we don't get them too many of them uh, here. One time I spent a summer in uh, Seneca Falls, New York, and uh, they get some pretty good thunderstorms there, like nothing I had ever known before. <laughs> you do not want to be out in the open on that. And, uh, but even recently, we, had, we have that come through town here, and uh, just like it went off in your backyard. And uh, the power of it, the loudness of it, the, just the sense of I'm in the middle of something that is just uh, way beyond my finiteness. And so heaven is going to be awesome. And, and just uh, the lightning, the thunderings, and, and the voices that are, are uh, uh, going on uh, up, up in there. And then he says, the seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And, and so these seven lamps, they're burning uh, a fire before the throne. These are the seven spirits of God. And so the, the Holy Spirit is present in all of this. And uh, as we looked at the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit when we looked at the church of Sardis and in uh, chapter 3 of, of the Revelation. But seven is a number of completeness in, in the Bible. It's seven days in the week. It's a complete week. Seven uh, primary colors in, in a rainbow, the rainbow that God has, has created. And so when it talks about this, you know, seven lamps and all, it speaks about the fullness of, of the presence of the Holy Spirit represented by the seven lamps of fire. They, they are there. And, and it's not inconsistent with the Bible, is it, where so often uh, the Holy Spirit is likened, uh, represented by fire in the Scriptures, the illuminating and the purifying influence of, of the Holy Spirit. So we look at this whole heavenly scene. Father's present in His fullness. The Holy Spirit is present in His fullness. And there's just one missing. And, and it sets the stage for the unfolding of the Lamb of Jesus then in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 5. Notice in verse 6, He speaks then of, of a sea of glass like crystal. Therefore the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal crystal and and so it talks about a sea and and what does that give us a sense for the size of it the size of it all of the saints are going to stand on that glassy sea like crystal 
And we're going to praise the Lord there. And we're going to see in chapter 5, whenever we get there, that there's an angelic host that sings praises to the Lord along with the church in heaven. And that heavenly choir of angels numbers a hundred million plus. So we're going to be a pretty big sea. Now he talks about a sea that's just like, like glass there, like, like crystal, like glass. Speaks about peace, doesn't it? When a sea is like glass, heaven is a peaceful place. All this color, all these sights and sounds, all these things, but it's, it's going to be a very, very peaceful place. I don't know how many of you have crystal at home. He talks about the sea of, uh, of glass being like crystal. But you, when, when colors go through crystal, what happens to them? They're amplified. They go in all directions and all. And here you've got these colors, you know, emanating from the throne of God and all, hitting the crystal. And I mean, what's that going to be like for us to see? It's going to be amazing to see there, there in, in heaven. So heaven is, is uh, 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 going to be a, a peaceful place as we stand on that uh, sea of glass and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back so he talks about four living creatures here and and they've got eyes on on the front side of them and on the back side of them weird this is wilder than anything that uh, George Lucas could come up with couldn't it I have to speak carefully, don't I, because we're from Modesto. But you, you see all those goofy figures and things that he comes up with and all the angelic beings, wild, what God has created. A little bit later in the book of Revelation, he's got angels that are so big, one is able to put their foot, his foot on the sea and on the land. The, the sea and the land are likewise firm to him. And, I, and, and the angelic beings are, I mean, we're going to need a new body to be able to handle them and process them. And, and sometimes they come like a, you know, a stranger, they come to us, and, and we entertain uh, strangers, and, and we need to be aware that we can be entertaining an angel. They can take kind of a form that's more familiar to us. But some of the descriptions of the angels in the Bible, wow. Sometimes people say, you know, God, if this is really from you, would you cause a, an angel to come into my room right now? You might not survive it. You have a heart attack and just die right in the room. be so sad for you. But here, here's this, these creatures, these angelic beings, eyes all on the front, eyes all on the back, fully aware of everything that is going on around them there in, in the heavenly uh, scene. And then he describes the first living creature as being like a lion, the second living creature uh, like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying uh, eagle. And, and then the four living creatures each had six wings. They were full of eyes within and without. Now this vision that, that John is, is seeing here, very similar to the vision that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1, where he saw the angelic beings and saw the same series of angelic beings with the same kind of, of faces there. So the first with a face like a lion and then like a calf and like a man, 
The fourth light was like a flying eagle. And the parallels are amazing as it relates to the Gospels and, and how Jesus is presented in each of the Gospels. Like, like the first living creature with the face of a lion in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew presents Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Over and over again, he says, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written, including Jesus as the lion of the tribe of of Judah. And so he's as a lion, he's like a king, king of the jungle, majestic and, and powerful. And then the second living creature is a face like a calf. Mark's gospel presents Jesus as, um, as a servant. And he talks about, he, he speaks of him as, as being like a calf here, but as an ox in Ezekiel's uh, prophecy. But they're one and the same. There's just a few years added to the one on it. But the, the gospel according to Mark speaks about Jesus as the servant, coming as the servant. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the third living creature in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus' humanity is emphasized. And the third living creature has, has the face like a man. And over and over again you see Luke referring to Jesus as the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. The emphasis upon his humanity. And then like the fourth living creature that was like an, like an eagle. And what does an eagle do? Soars in the heavenlies. Comfortable. In, in the heavenlies, at home in the heavenlies. And of course, John's gospel presents Jesus as the Son of God, come from heaven, comfortable in, in the heavenlies. And so here, all of it, the, you know, the volume of the book, it testifies of, of Jesus. Heaven is about Jesus, even in the creation of, of the angels. They have the wings, they have the eyes, and then notice their song. And they do not rest day or night, so in, in heaven, I don't know if it's true about everybody else, but in heaven, angels don't need to sleep. So there's no time uh, lost related to that. And they sing day and night without rest, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, just as we have sung uh, today. And, and what they offer up to the Lord in that heavenly scene, their ministry is one of just offering uninterrupted praise to God for one specific trait, the trait of holiness. I love His grace. I love His love. I love everything about God. But when you go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the single characteristic that God is praised the most for from one end of the book to the other is His holiness. Now don't misdefine holiness as being, you know, a certain kind of a look or a certain kind of whatever. Jesus is the picture of, of holiness. But to be holy is to be different. And heaven is completely different from the earth. It is perfectly, perfectly holy. And here on this earth, isn't it interesting, you know, the riots that have been going on over these uh, cartoons of uh, Muhammad all around the world and, and all. And then, and then people say, well, you know, if they, if they did something like that and they blasphemed Jesus, all of the Christians would go crazy too. Excuse me? They do it every week, excuse me. 
I mean, if we were, uh, had a rioting God, we'd have an occasion to riot every single day of the week. He's blasphemed. And, and yet, as, as much as the holiness of God is scorned in this world, in heaven they love it. In heaven we're going to uh, love it. And God is speaking of all of this, I think, because He wants us to know that all of the judgment that is going to come upon this earth that follows in the rest of this book, it comes out of His holiness. A holiness that's celebrated there in heaven. It's because of His holiness that He must judge sin. So that's what it's an expression of. Heaven's going to be a holy place. You know how holy it's going to be? You can't be tempted there. There will not be the, even the existence of temptation for us to fall when we've got our new bodies and set and situated all there in heaven. No, 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 not, not only no sin, but no temptation to sin. It's going to be wonderful. We're being prepared for it. Our hearts long for it. <laughs> Will you miss this flesh when you're up in heaven? I won't miss You, you know the, uh, the old saying, you wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you see the enemy. It's the truth. I'm going to fight you all day long again today. You ugly whatever, you know, kind of a deal. I'm not going to miss it at all and, and, and be done with it. And so they, they talk about His holiness who was and is and is to come speaks of the eternal nature of God. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then this is what the 24 elders do at that time. They fall down before Him who sits on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever, casting their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And the 24 elders representing the church begin to give praise to the Lord. What do they do first, though? They cast their crowns before the Lord. And sometimes we talk about, and there's differences of reward in heaven based upon our faithfulness to what God has called us to be in our individual lives for Him, this side of heaven and all. So sometimes I'll kid around a little bit about having a beanie versus a real crown and that, that kind of stuff and all. But, so, but it's not going to be like heaven is going to be this thing where this guy's going to have like a three-foot crown. He's walking around with guy wires and everything. And say, Hi, it's me again. Did I tell you the story about the time that I ran the crusade? And, you know, and, uh, and you know, no. What ha everybody's got these crowns. And, and all, but what do they do with them? They cast them before the Lord. And, and what is it? It is a confession that everything we were and everything that we did for you on earth, we did because you gave us the grace to do it. And now we offer even the reward of that back to you. So there's humility in heaven. There's the reward and all of that. But everybody has the same recognition that anything good that came out of our lives was because of the grace of God. And so 
to you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And here's why. For you created all things. We'll worship him as the creator. And by your will they exist and were created. I don't like it in the New King James. It's one of the few verses that I, I prefer in the Old King James. In the Old King James, the song goes like this. And for you created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Man was created to bring pleasure to God. And it is only as I accept that about why I've been created and then engage in the very thing that I've been created for that I will find fulfillment in life. Until I'm engaged in that relationship with the Lord and engaged in the worship of Him that He is due as my Creator, there will always be that nagging sense in my life that there must be something more to life than I have experienced. And the reason that we feel that is because until we're engaged in that relationship, there is something more to life than what we have experienced. And so to accept this about God, to accept this about myself, is to be able to head into life as God intended it uh, to be. And so the worship that's lifted up to the Lord, if you love worship... If you just love worshiping the Lord morning, noon, and night, you're going to love heaven. That's exactly what we're going to be doing in heaven. Heaven is a worshiping place. Now, the great dilemma. What time does your watch say, Bill? Do you have one? You don't have one. God bless you. Nobody should bring a watch to church, should they? This is fabulous. I'm showing about a little bit before 7 o'clock, huh? 7 o'clock straight up? You are judging. You don't. You do know what I'm. I'm thinking about here. Is. Look what I've got. I've got a riot on my hands. <laughs> well, there's something. There's something I'm thinking about here, uh, related to this. Oh, we can do it in four minutes. It's not a problem. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. So here, John, in that heavenly scene, as it all just continues, he looks to the throne of the Father, and he sees a right hand, so to speak, and it's holding a scroll, the one that sits in, in the throne. Now, a scroll in those days, they didn't have books like we have of paper and sheets and like that. Scroll was what they wrote on. And when they would write something in a scroll, then they would roll it up and they would put seals on that scroll on the edges of it. And, and the only way that you could find out what was in the scroll was then to break those seals. That's what is in the hands of the Father on the throne. Now, what the scroll appears uh, to be, to me, is the title deed of planet Earth. In Jeremiah, 
chapter 32, we're told of an event in Jeremiah's ministry having to do with a sealed scroll. And I'm always looking for the Old Testament to kind of interpret uh, the book of Revelation. Jeremiah is in the city of Jerusalem. The city is being laid siege to uh, by Babylon. It is going to fall to Babylon. Jerusalem is going to be taken. And God told Jeremiah in the middle of this whole siege and the city's about to fall that his cousin Hanameel would come to him offering to sell Jeremiah his field in Anathoth because Jeremiah was the nearest kinsman, nearest blood relative, kinsman redeemer. So in order to keep the land in the family, would Jeremiah be willing to buy this piece of land? Probably two years later, he'd have been delighted to buy the land. But the land's already been gobbled up by the Babylonians. Israel's going to go into captivity, into the Babylonian captivity. They have no knowledge except what God has given them that they're ever going to come back into the land and ever have a chance to uh, own their own homes in the land that they once had. It's a, a terrible real estate transaction that God is telling uh, Jeremiah to do and God told Jeremiah when your cousin comes you go ahead and buy that piece of land from him as a witness to the fact that you will not always be in Babylonian captivity you will one day come back to this land as you have been prophesying I want you to practice what you've been preaching buy the land take the scroll the title deed to the land Put it in, in a, a, an earthen vessel so that when you come back or your family, that land will be there uh, waiting uh, for you. And so Jeremiah, he paid his cousin the 17 shekels of silver for the land. They signed the deed, rolled it up in a scroll. They sealed it with a wax seal. It was given to Jeremiah, and, uh, and he put it away in, in a dry place for storage. And it's interesting, the whole thing, because though Jeremiah owned the property at this point, it would not be until after the rule of Babylon, the rule of the Gentiles was over, that he would be able to take possession of it. He had purchased it. He owned it. But a period of time would pass before he would take possession of it. But during that time, it was never in any doubt that he would. Now in the same way, when God created the world, he gave dominion of the world to Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish and the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God gave dominion to Adam and Eve over the whole earth. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they passed that dominion on to the devil. And they gave Satan a place in human history. They gave him a dominion and authority in human history that God never intended for the devil to have. Never intended to have it be introduced into the history of man. And they forfeited their dominion over the earth to the devil. That's why when Satan in Luke chapter 4 came to Jesus in his public ministry and at the beginning of his public ministry and tempted him, he declared to Jesus, he said to him, taking him on a high mountain, the devil said to Jesus as he showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, he said, 
all of this, all this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Jesus goes on to rebuke the devil, but he never denied the devil's claim. Never said that it wasn't true. That that authority and dominion had been passed on by sin to the devil. Satan is the god of this age. He's the god of this world, the Bible says. But when Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, like Jeremiah was in that transaction, died on the cross for our sins, and he was buried and he rose again on the third day, he not only redeemed us from Satan's dominion, but he also redeemed this world. Remember in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 44, the parable of the hidden treasure. Jesus said again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for the joy over it, the treasure, he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. What is the field? In the parables, the field is, is the world. Why did he redeem the world? In order to get the treasure. What was the treasure he was looking to redeem in the world? The church, you and I. And so on the cross, Jesus purchased this world and the church within it. The world that had been sold into slavery by Adam and Eve. Now, it's interesting that the writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, he noted that we still see the world under the dominion of the devil, despite Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We don't yet see the world uh, under, in subjection to God, he said in chapter 2, verse 8, and you have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. The writer of the book of Hebrews is right. It isn't yet under the absolute, you know, kind of authority of, of Jesus as it will in the kingdom age. But here in chapter 5, the process begins. Jesus purchased the world 2,000 years ago. But in chapter 5, he rises up to take possession of what he purchased 2,000 years ago. And what happens here in chapter 5 and on through the book of Revelation is the greatest close of escrow in human history. A little real estate lingo for you on that. But it's true. It's true. He is going to establish his dominion over it. The scroll is written on both sides. There's a lot written on that scroll. And a question then is posed by a strong angel in verse 2 who then proclaims with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. He, he just shouts this with a loud voice. Who is worthy, he says, to open the scroll and to loose the seals? And we're told in verse 3, and no one in heaven, no angel, or on the earth, no human being, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. He invites anyone who is worthy to open that scroll to step forward. We don't know how long this pause occurs in heaven. We don't know how long he waited. But no one could step forward to take that scroll out of the Father's hand. 
and then and take the back earth back in completely in, in the control of, of the Lord. And when John is witnessing this whole scene, no one coming forward, it says, And so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or even to look at it. He sits there and he, and he, and he looks. And now remember, he's in heaven. You're not in heaven. He knows what life is on planet earth. Now he knows what life is like in heaven. And when he sees no one coming to take this scroll in his mind, the devil's dominion and influence upon the world is going to go on uninterrupted forever and ever and ever. And the thought of it is so heartbreaking to him that he begins to weep literally with just flow of tears begins to weep over over that whole possibility i tell you i i would i would weep too if i didn't know the rest of the story here on on things and and so as he begins to weep and over all of it one of the elders then said to him do not weep give me one good reason all right Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, one of the names of Jesus, the root of David. These are Old Testament prophetic names concerning Jesus the Messiah. They know prophecy up in heaven. They believe in him as the Messiah on the basis of the fulfillment of prophecy. He has prevailed or conquered. He's already done it through his death, burial, and resurrection. He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And then I looked, and I think it's one of the most touching Verses in all of the Bible for John. When you think about John's relationship with the Lord, he loved the Lord and the Lord loved him. And I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though he had been slain. Jesus still bearing the marks of his crucifixion in heaven. Still bearing the marks of the price that he paid for us to be there. I mean, how humbling that is. And that's what John sees. He now sees his, his Lord Jesus there. And there having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all of the earth. And so when Jesus comes forth to begin this judgment upon the earth, he comes forth with a complete authority and agreement of the other two persons of the Godhead. The Father has given him the scroll. The Spirit of God is great upon him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved in the judgment that is, is going to uh, follow there. And then uh, he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. The scroll is now in the hands of Jesus. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You ever pray that prayer, that model prayer Jesus gave us? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you go to sleep at the end of the day and you say, rats, it didn't happen. You know, one day it's going to happen. Those prayers aren't being prayed in vain. And, and that his will is going to be done on earth even as it is in heaven our prayers are going to be answered and they sang a new song saying you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals why is he worthy of that 
That's the, what the word for is all about. For you were slain, dying for our sins, and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Praise for him as our redeemer. He's redeemed us out of sin, redeemed us into his kingdom, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So he's praised as the one who died for our sins, who redeemed us to God and then he's praised for the privilege that is ours to be able to serve him, to serve God and God's purposes. I think that I would be in an insane asylum on planet earth if I had not come to know the Lord, not because I'm a particularly weak person, though I am that, but if all life was, was eating and watching television and looking forward to the next vacation and the whatever it is that is, goes on in life, or what, that's not enough. I mean, we have this sense within us we've been created for much more than that. And it is our privilege. It's, it, it's viewed as a privilege by these representing the church. The privilege that is ours to serve the Lord for our lives to be spent toward eternal things. I mean, that's what I wake up for in the morning. That's what you wake up for in the morning. What a privilege it is for us. And they praise the Lord for it. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 which is a hundred million that's pretty that's pretty good size sanctuary got a hundred million there and then thousands of thousands on top of it saying with a loud voice and this is what they say to the Lord worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing can you imagine hearing a hundred million voices in unison in a perfect environment, perfect, you know, acoustics, perfect voices singing this in unison to the Lord. Again, I mean, if you, if you love worship, you're going to love heaven. And we're all going to sound good there, too. Sometimes you feel sorry for the person sitting right in front of you. They're in worship. That's why we keep the sound. Sometimes people say, I've got to have the sound up so high. Yeah, otherwise people won't sink. They have, they, people that come to this church, they have pity on They love people. If they can't sing and they're going to be off key and everything, they'll be worried about, you know, taking the other person off key in front of them. But we're all going to sing good in heaven. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, which means that's the truth. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. That's where we're headed. <laughs> because of him. Because of that brow and that crown of thorns and the scourging that he took the spit all over him and the blasphemies, the spear in the side, separation from the Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All that he did. 
because he wants this to be the scene that every single human being finds himself on. If you sit here tonight and you're not saved, you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You need to trust in him tonight. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants this to be your future. And he's paid an enormous price for it to be so. Because he loves you and he loves us. I don't get it, but he does. This is our future because of our Savior. So if the worship team would come forward right now and the men that are going to serve communion to us right now, that'd be great.